So it's another big pleasure to bring another new episode of Value Nigeria podcast even to you, the listeners. Um, it's a podcast where we strive to improve our investing practice and hopefully we aim to achieve mastery even in the field of investing and wealth building or wealth creation. Um, hope you've had a wonderful week um, to all the listeners. Um, this week, in our usual tradition, we have another guest on the show. Um, it's quite exciting today and I'm very excited and that's because the, the guest we have on is different from the type of guests that we've had in the past. Um, most of our guests have been professionals that have been directly involved in investing in one capacity or the other. But my guest today is an auditor. Um, he's not just an auditor, he's also a CFA charter holder. And if you're wondering what CFA is, and th- that's um, a chartered financial analyst. Um, he's someone who has um, worked in a good number of firms, the big four in Nigeria and even outside the shores of the country. Um, I'll, I'll let him introduce himself to you today. My guest today is Mr. Idris Anyede. Um, do you just want to introduce yourself to the listeners of the show, sir? All right. Uh, good afternoon and uh, thanks for having me on the session. Uh, I'd like to introduce my name is Idris Anyede. I guess I'll probably just go straight to, to my introduction <laughs> straight away. So, uh, point of correction, I'm not an auditor. I don't like to refer to as an auditor, but I'm closer to, to those that audit financial statements. So, okay. uh, I, um, I studied accounting at my undergraduate level from the University of Lagos. I had um, a first class in accounting. And then... Um, uh, after my the usual youth service, uh, I started working uh, with a professional service firm in Nigeria. Uh, that was um, Deloitte. So I was with um, Deloitte for roughly about um, three years before I joined um, Price Waterhouse Cofas, known as PwC, uh, in Nigeria as a senior associate. Uh, I was also in um, PwC in Nigeria for about a year and a half before I moved to the UK in January 2019, uh, where I joined um, KPMG in the UK. I joined KPMG as an assistant manager in the banking accounting advisory team, and I was with um, KPMG in the UK for roughly two and a half years before I I joined EY in June 2021. It's almost um, 10 months now. So I'm a manager in the CS4 advisory services with uh, with EY. Uh, to sort of cut the long story short, I'm simply a uh, an accounting consultant, so providing clients with accounting advice. So more of um, clients having um, technical accounting issues, preparing their financial statements. So when they have like complex transactions, helping them to interpret the accounting standard on how that would reflect in their financial statement for ultimately, you know, for, for their sort of like their annual financial statement, which will be audited by the uh, by their auditor. So it's something which I've been doing for over seven years now. And in that process, I sort of work with, with the client and the auditors to sort of ensure that the financial statements that the clients prepare and then present to the public 
you know, showing the truth and sort of reflecting the the uh, the true um, nature of, of the transactions and they are accurate as 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 possible as they can. Uh, in terms of my professional qualifications, um, at the point when I was doing my NYC, I actually enrolled to study ICANN exams. So I I took my ICANN exams in 2013 and 2014. So I, I mean, during that process, I also won um, some national prizes. I was the third um, best candidate in my first level of exams at the professional exam one level of ICANN. And then when I wrote my final ICANN exams in 2014, I was the best um, qualifying candidate in May 2014 and also for the year 2014 after the November exam. So um, after that, I at the point when I was working in Dillard, I started my CSA qualification. So um, I started uh, my CSA exam and then I completed it in my first year in the UK. So I also have the, uh, the, the CSA charter. Uh, I think I think that sort of summarizes it all. Yeah. In fact, I'm I'm, I'm dumbfounded. <laughs> I, I was just wondering what's the next thing you're going to bring out of your bag of tricks. Um, it, it's a pleasure to have you on the show today. It's very obvious that um you, you are someone that takes a lot of diligence and practice, not just even in the academics, but even in the practice of your profession. And uh, I'm very encouraged by this. Um. It's amazing how you've worked in a whole a good number of the big fours, not just in in Nigeria but even internationally. And I'm hoping to glean from this level of experience and um, from your knowledge over the years in our course of discussion. And this this is why I said that our discussion today is going to be different from the usual ones that we've had. Okay, I I always like asking my guests to just try and find out what piqued their interest with the world of finance, with the world of investing. So at what point did you discover that you had an attraction for numbers or for accounting or for finance generally? No, okay. So I think um, I have had more for numbers right from say my family school. So my dad does something for me. So um, when he goes to work on the weekend, he it gives me uh, some questions, sort of mathematics questions. And um, I think over time when I grew up, I understood that what my father was trying to achieve at that point was to give me a number of questions such that I will be unable to finish them and even have time to, you know, <laughs> to, to do some work. So, so I battled with those questions over the weekend and, um, and that was just it. So I, I think... I developed that much interest in, in numbers um, much younger. And then when I was in my secondary school, um, I did well in my junior secondary school exams. And when it was time to sort of choose, you know, you usually choose your department uh, the way it is uh, when, you, when you get to senior secondary school. I went to a public um, secondary school anyways. So I looking at it, I mean, I was, I, I knew that I was smart enough to go to the science classes, but um, if I would have, I think what what would have maybe what sort of came close out the profession that sort of took my interest in was was medicine. But I dread the sight of blood. So I was like, okay, no, I, I think maybe that line is not really for me. So at that point, when we were choosing, I chose to go to commercial class, and my dad just asked me a question that like, is that what you want? I said yes, and then and then that was just the end of the discussion, and um, and that was just it. So I think. Um, 
I mean, when I look back, I think I was I was grateful I made that church because um, when I sort of settled in in the commercial classes and like and throughout my my stay in the secondary school, it got to an extent that when we are probably in in a financial accounting classes, it's usually a class that that comes after the break, and when I'm not in the class. The account teacher would usually ask him, where, where is Idris? And <laughs> because, uh, I mean, the class always interests me because I, I, I also like contribute um, quite positively in that class. So I think at that point I settled in quite comfortably and, um, it was, it was just okay for me that to the extent that in my jam exam, when I was trying to gain admission to study accounting in July at that point, I actually did accounting in my jam exam. You know, people would usually have gone for me because common. How could you take accounting in the job exam because of the calculations and like so I actually took it and um uh I mean it wasn't not surprising enough that that was like the score which I, I had the highest score in my in my job exam. I think maybe ninety something, I can't remember, but it was more like in the highest of my score in my in my job exam. I had two nineteen yeah in total and account was like the, the major part of it. So I think it was something that has um taken my interest like for for a very long time and um uh, and, and over time, it's something that, that that happens to me quite naturally. So if if anything comes or there's probably any accounting issues, and uh, I mean, I found it that I solve it effortlessly, uh, like my colleague would say, because I mean, <laughs> uh, and, and I guess it's just gone out of like my 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 interest for uh, for for accounting. There was a time I had a friend I was writing a professional exam, and I mean. And actually, he needed to, you know, needed some prep and like. So I think before his exam, he actually came to my house. And then, um, I mean, I was back from work. I was tired. I was dozing. But even while I was sleeping, I was still teaching the accounting stuff. And, and when he actually did the exam, and he, he did quite well. I was like, no, it's easy. We could actually teach this even while you were sleeping. And I could pass this exam. And I guess <laughs> if you were not actually sleeping, I would probably have blasted the exam as much as I did, yeah. So it's it's a long time interest, and it's something I I I enjoy doing. So that's why it's, um, I'm still here, and I'm, I mean, probably that's why I'm able to doing the big for doing uh, doing what what I like doing. Yeah. Amazing. Um, thank thank you very very much for sharing that personal side of the story. Um, many times when I look back and see the effort our parents put in, you know, to make us the persons that we are today. Um, I just wonder if we are doing enough as parents today. Um, are you implementing any of the things that you learned from your dad, like some of the techniques he used? Are you implementing them today to pass this this passion to the next generation? Uh, well, in in my own case, I mean, I've I've got quite a number of mentors, and um, my my son is still quite young, so I can, I can't give him this lengthy exam yet. <laughs> Yeah, but uh, yeah, I think I, I, over time I think I'm, I'm someone that also like like in, in passing knowledge. Anyway, so I've got like a lot of mentors who I sort of regularly you know, touch base with in terms of you know, trying to to influence and, and help them to you know to guide them in terms of um, career choices and like to also help them succeed. Uh, because I think one of the writers of which I think also opened at, at some point in my in my life was I, I had a mentor like. The, a, a guidance at at some point in uh, in my secondary school, so which which sort of you know helped shape shaped my thinking in terms of um, having that foresight and not just you know 
shot some sighted in terms of looking at the bigger picture and it was it was right at that moment that, you know, I, I had my, my eyes on, on the goal in terms of what I would like to do and where I would actually like to be. At the point when I sort of gained admission into university, I understood that this is this is what I need to achieve and this is where I want to be at this point in time. So it was it was easier to, to stay on course uh, because I had that, that sort of guidance. So that in that similar way, I'm, I'm sort of doing uh, something quite similar now, uh, but it's more on an informal note, but I'm working on something uh, currently, which is um, quite a formal, it's a mentorship scheme, but uh, it's something I'm doing with, uh, uh, with with some of that sort of close, um, close, close friends, but it wouldn't just be um, sectored on, on finance only, but just um, providing some career guidance for, you know, some um, some you know, from younger ones, uh, particularly those of um, uh, the ethnic minority groups in the UK, just helping them to sort of drive their career choices and help them provide that guidance, which I think helped me at some point, yeah. All right. Thank you very much, sir. Thank you very much, sir. Um, now, I'm just going to go into the crux of our discussion today. Now, with investing, <laughs> a lot of the decisions that we make, a lot of investing is based on the numbers that we see released by these companies. You know, we, we just have to have faith that whatever these companies are releasing are credible and we can then base decisions based on those numbers. Now, mm-hmm. as somebody who has seen things from the backstage, as investors, we are, we are not privy to a lot of the things that go on in the background. All we just wait for is when we then release the results and then we analyze it. Now, as someone who has seen things from the other side of the coin, how reliable are these figures that we see released from companies on a daily basis? Yeah, so I mean, it's a, it's a million dollar question. Our reliable financial statement is, is, is a function of many things. One of them is it's a function of the process that results in that final financial statement. Uh, it's a function of the resources behind it. And it's also the, the function of the consequences of not um, releasing uh, an accurate financial statement. And I'll just um, illustrate each of them um, separately. So. When you look at a process, you know, the process that results in a financial statement starts from the, the entry point in terms of the entry, the, the entry of the, the, the transaction itself. How was it initially entered in the financial statement? There are maybe things around like approval of, of, of those entries before it goes get to the stage of, you know, the maybe the tracking of the balance, the monitoring, the reporting process. Uh, some companies would yeah, do most of those months you know, reporting until the end of the year where they do the annual financial statement. When they do the annual financial statement, which would sort of pro- provide your original numbers, then they would have some data and the disclosures, you know, explaining major transactions and to get to the stage of the auditing and the like. So there are, there are a lot of processes. So usually if there are more quality checks or there are more um, qualitative inputs uh, within that process, you could to a larger extent be assured that the final output will be of um, utmost um, quality and then you can rely on the financial statement. And then secondly, which is quite related to the first thing is around the resources, you know, if you know if an entity has like enough manpower to you know to carry that process, they've got like some technical know how, you know, like you know, some in house technical accounting experts where they probably have issues that could help them resolve those issues. So even if they don't 
you decide they have resources, you know, to contract out, to reach out, you know, like maybe professional services firms, you know, we, we have these accounting issues. What is the right accounting treatment? What's the interpretation based on the accounting standards? And on that basis, they, they could get you know, the right accounting treatment and that would help them to present that accurately in their financial statement. The last thing is around, you know, if there are regulatory implications, meaning that when a company publishes their financial statement, they know that you know, the regulators would actually pick their financial statement to review their financial statement. And on that basis, if there are issues or there are faults or there are errors in their financial statement, they know that the regulators would publish that, the regulators would come back for them, the regulators might punish them for that basis. So on that, they would have done their own due diligence to ensure that you know any sort of input or output that they are producing the financial statement is as close to as accurate as possible. Now, all these things which I've mentioned, you know, you would rightly say that well, for big companies, they are able to afford these sort of resources, and that's why right, the larger sense you would usually expect that the financial statement that they publish would be you know, would be um, would be as reliable as much as possible. But that doesn't mean that you know smaller entities can't. You know, with smaller entities, they probably have lesser complex transactions, and on that basis. They might not really need much of too much of robust processes or you know technical know-how to present a true and fair financial statement. And on that basis, as long as that process is also correct, then you would expect that the um, financial statement would be um, uh, would be would be reliable. So, so, so I think in in terms of how reliable the financial statement is, uh, I would I, I mean I wouldn't want to give a general answer, but I guess. I wouldn't want to say the political answer, but the financial statement output is as good as this underlying process. So if you want, if one could actually ascertain that, okay, I think this company, you know, they have this process, they they, they have this um, access to this technical know-how, and you know, they they are also being watched by regulators. You would expect that you know such with uh, financial statements would be relevant. It's quite similar in anywhere in the UK. You you have the Financial reporting council that does that. In the US, we have this tech here. You know, so in Nigeria, also the financial reporting council of Nigeria that reviews the financial statement of entities. So these regulators they also ensure that you know, all these stuff are, are in place. So you would expect that um, you know, um, the companies that, that are liable, that uh, that publication to submit to these regulators, their financial statements would to a larger extent be reliable. Oh, thank you very much for that insight. Um, what you've shared has made me think things from another point of view. You know, many times the big the banks in Nigeria before they release their results, they have to first send it to CBN, and many times ordinary investors see this as an unnecessary delay in the results or in the release of the results. Uh, but with what you've shared, I I think that might just I will begin to see this as a mechanism maybe from the regulators just to make sure that the numbers tally and things um are done in the right manner okay yeah okay now uh i'm just going to throw you into the deep end now <laughs> i know despite yeah. the fact that um there are lots of things in place the audit committee is there to have a look at the numbers or the genuineness of that the auditors they, they do their own beats yet we still see a couple of companies that you know over the years, not just even in Nigeria, even foreign big companies like Enron, that they still cook the books one way or the other. Now, from your professional experience, from what you've seen, are there ways that the retail investors, are there numbers that we can look at 
that might give us an idea or how can we tell from looking at the numbers that things might not be the way they they have been presented okay so um most times depending on what you need the financial statement for and i guess ordinarily if you're looking at investing in a company and um you're probably looking at let's say short term profit or you're looking at the company that you would like them to be paying dividends so you're looking at the company that you what you're looking at for is you sort of want some capital appreciation then the financial metrics that you'll be looking at when the financial statements might might differ perhaps let's let me give an example in financial statements is showing that they have like the high earnings per share right let's say the earnings per share is so so high because of you know the the eventual profit but the dividends that they are paying is so much more lower to the earnings that they are making and there's no report in the financial statement that says maybe you know the management they are uh, benchmarking or they are uh, they're sort of setting aside a certain portion of their earnings for this capital investment or for this future development it means that what they are earning they, it's not actually they're not making as much cash as as they uh Cash as they say that they are earning. It could be that some of those earnings are, you know, they are, I would say, some unrealized earnings or artificial earnings. And to an extent, it might be possible, you know, depending on some accounting rules or like that is, um, that is adopted, you could actually be reporting gains in your financial statement. But the gains might not have been realized. They could be, you know, gains in paper, maybe some fair value gains. Let me give an example of an entry. As an investment in shares in another company, and the shares is measured as fair value in their financial statement. In their income statement, you see them reporting gains on these shares because, based on the market value of the share investment which they have, the value has increased in market, but they haven't actually gotten that gain in cash. Right? So, that would tell you that you know, most of the earnings that the entity is reporting is, is only realized gains, and on that basis, it might not be paying as much dividends as they as you thought they would have based on their earnings. So that's just one. So the couple of other metrics in terms of like like the leverage ratios, you know, their debt to capital ratios. It tells you um, whether this company is in serious financial debt and they would actually be paying more to service their debt and pay more interest in the long run and therefore would not really have much profit to share or would not be retaining much profit in the business. So there are a couple of lots of accounting ratios. So and each of these accounting ratios, they basically have like their own purpose of what you can use them to assess in the financial statement. So depending on you know, you know, uh, a retail investor's motive for investing in a company, you might need to actually assess some of these um, these, these ratios. Uh, to, to to determine uh, whether you think um, this entity is actually being quite alright or not. I wouldn't want to start listening to this here because this is not a financial ratio masterclass. But um, yeah, that's just a bit of a checkdown for you. Okay, Th- thank you very much, sir. Yes, I agree it's not a financial ratio masterclass, but can you just mention one or two of them? You don't need to go deep into the details as to what those ratios are or how to interpret them. Just for somebody who is listening no. to this, just so that they can know the things to possibly read more about or the things to focus on. Okay, yeah. So I've just, I've just mentioned one in my example. That's uh, 
something called the the dividend yield ratio. Uh, another one which I also mentioned just earlier is um is um clearing ratio. That would that would sort of help you to to determine in terms of how how much of the uh, the, the company is is being funded by uh, by by debt. And then you also want to, to sort of see in terms of you know, what what's actually like the, the return that the entity is making on the, the equity in the company. That's what return on, on equity ratios. Essentially, what that says is um, how much uh, returns is the entity actually making on the on the equity that is contributed by, by the investors uh, in in their in their in their business. Um, then there are a couple of other ones things around like some liquidity issues. Now essentially that would help you to tell whether, you know, would this company have enough cash uh to be able to one, maybe to, to go on to stop their business or not. Uh you might also want to look at things around like the, the invent if it depends on the type of entity. If there's a type that deals with inventory, you want to look at things around like the inventory turnover issue. Now, essentially that would tell you how you know how fast the business is moving in terms of how they quickly, you know, it's turning their inventory to sales and then replacing their inventory and then the cycle goes on and on, on and on like that. Yeah. So, so those are just you know, some, some minor, small examples. Yeah. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, sir. Um, I, I, I'm going to be humble and eat the humble pie. And that's because an acquaintance of mine has always said that, you know, if, if a company is reporting a high EPS, but they are paying if only a very meager fraction of that as dividends without mm. reflecting why, maybe having high cap- capital expenditures or something for that given year. He always runs away from such companies. And I've, I've always seen that as it doesn't matter. Maybe the company is, um, you know, maybe they are planning for the future or something, something, but I, I, I eat the humble pie now. I would go back to him with my with my tail between my legs and uh, <laughs> tell him that he, he definitely was right all along. Okay. Going on, sir, in most financial statements, um, retail investors are very quick to look at the income statements. They, they want to know the profits. They want to know the earnings per share. Um, you know, look at the balance sheets. Maybe a few people pay attention to the cash flows, which I even think is even probably one of the most important parts. But one part that most people do not pay any attention to is the reports by the auditors of the company. In mm-hmm. fact, I, I doubt if up to 0.1% of people actually take their time to read that part of the financial statements. As someone who has seen things from the other side, what benefits do retail investors gain by scrutinizing, especially that part of the financial statements? Mm-hmm. As, as much as I, I think I could audit in myself, that's more like the first set of areas which I go to when I look at the financial statement because it, it tells you the entire story, the entire program of, of the entity, especially the, the aspect of the, the auditors that I like, like, personally, like the key, they call it like the key audit matters or the key audit risk areas. Now, usually from the auditor's report, you can tell if one, if the company has a green concern issues, or if there's any uh, uh, any accounting or misstatement issues, and then if there are sort of like the key audit risk as well, they sort of uh, the auditors would highlight that. I mean, we've audited this company, and these were the areas that were more risky, and we had to you know, perform extra process. And when you look at those areas which the auditors have listed, it will tell you, you know, 
is an area to probably need to you know, check in the financial statement what has actually happened during that year. So uh, as much as reading the financial statement is very important, I think the auditor's report should be one of the first aspects of the financial statement which you, you need to do fast for. And particularly if the, auditor's the, the auditor's report says that the financial statement is qualified, then what that means is that, you know, it's... Um, the auditors have had a reservation on the financial statement, and and that means you should be should be wary of um, of relying on that financial statement because the auditors themselves have given like a caveat uh, when they they are issuing their their auditors report. So it, it's a very important aspect of the financial statement, uh, which we can't uh, which you can't disregard when when reviewing the financial statement. Okay, th- thank you for that education. I- I'm just wondering why that choice of words, because qualified can be ordinarily interpreted as, you know, is qualified is a good thing, so you can trust it. Um, a- any no. particular reason why that word or why that is so? When they say um, uh, a financial statement is a, a qualified opinion, it means that um, the financial statements are fairly presented but there are exceptions to some specified areas. So the financial statement could be interested. It is unqualified such that the financial statement is true and fair, everything looks okay. Now, it could be qualified, which is a major position, meaning that the the author feels that financial statement is okay, but they have an exception to some areas where they think it is not okay. And then the last one is um is 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 known as an adverse or a disclaimer of opinion. In that case, it's um it, it's as simple as saying the financial statement can't be relied upon. So the qualified aspect, it, it sounds a bit positive, but it, it, it's a positive with a bit of dent. Let me put it that way. All right, thank you, thank you very much. I've never seen that. I, I think I'll start looking out for that now. This this indeed is a big education for. A lot of people listening, including myself. Now, for for retail investors listening that want to improve their analytical skills or want to improve their ability to, um, you know, dissect the financial statements, um, what do you recommend? Are there any resources that you feel would help them along the way in this quest? I think the first thing is one to to try and understand what are like those key key terminologies in the financial statement. First, that you know you would be able to understand them. And then if you understand what what you want to, the reason why you're investing, and I guess your sort of method of knowledge would be to understand, for you to assess whether any company that you're investing in will be able to give you what you're looking at, for what are the key issues that you need to. And once you've identified those key issues, then you could always do a bit of calculation. So a couple of websites online, where you could actually you know, just increase some numbers from the financial statement and those ratios will be calculated for you online for free. So so I guess one is really understanding what what sort of you know, are you looking at you know a company that will be giving uh, dividend returns or are you looking for a company with capital appreciation? You know, a company with capital appreciation will probably not be paying much dividends now, but they'll be doing more of capital investment such that in the future you expect the, the value to have in, in, increased tremendously at which point you you, know, you would gain your reward. So what you'd be looking at for in that sort of company, you'd probably be seeing them doing more of capital applications, having more of um, fixed assets uh, or non-current assets in their financial statement. And that tells you that, okay, the company is massively you know, investing and you expect to reach that investment in the future. 
So, um, again, depending on what you're looking for, you would have to sort of, you know, identify what are the, the ratios that you need. But in terms of calculating those ratios, um, there's sort of some online websites where you can just, you know, just um, check online for financial issues and calculations, and you just need to provide some numbers from the financial statement. And that's why, you know, on your own part, you might need to understand in terms of, okay, when you open the financial statement, what are these numbers? You know, is there actually, what are the current assets? And, you know, as a retail investor, initially, you should be able to take a financial statement and say, okay, this is the current asset. But, you know, I mean, the, the, the simplest thing is when you financial statement, you should be able to find where the balance sheet, the income statement, the statement of taxes, or statement of changes in equity are. And most times, some of numbers are glaringly available there. So you probably just need to pick those numbers into some of these online resources and then you would understand the issues like that you need to get. All right, perfect. Thank you, sir. Thank you, sir. Um, now I'm going to ask a tricky question <laughs> just to get your opinion on it, on a subject matter. Now, you're, you're okay. a person of numbers. You're a person of, you know, that look at hard figures, that look at, you know, now with the new craze in town with cryptocurrencies, NFTs, um, DeFi, a lot of things that are going on right now in the digital space, um, which lack numbers that we can look at, you know, in valuing those assets or in understanding those assets. I would like to know what your opinion is regarding cryptocurrencies, NFTs, and all the likes. Okay. First, I would like to say this is not a financial advice session. It's just a theory educational section. So I think um, uh, cryptocurrencies and NFT, they are still, they are, I mean, to a large extent, I'll say it's, it's, it's still evolving because there are a lot of stuff coming up these days. And um, one is, it's a highly volatile, it's highly volatile. And uh, usually when I speak to people, I always advise, it's not something that you go in with your, with your life savings, otherwise you, you, you would be, they call it wreck, means <laughs> that, you you might yeah you're prone to losing entire everything that you have you should go all in. And notwithstanding you you probably would have seen people, you know, come online and say they've made this massive amount of money, it's fine. So from my own perspective it's something which I'm still learning about and um I mean I'm actively learning about it to be honest. And um I I mean I have some crypto currencies, I have some I have NFTs also. Uh and from my own perspective, it's it, it's purely educational. It's not something which I um, which I allocated most of my portfolio. I have it maybe just a small percentage of my investment portfolio in that because I, I mean I'm not looking at it to 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 sort of make a massive investment. I've made some gains in some of those ones at some point, made some losses, but it, it was just in a bit of me um, trying to to study that. And and I mean I became more curious quite recently. Particularly in NFTs, because of you know some, it's sort of been gaining quite a lot of interest. Um, quite recently, you I don't know you you probably have had at some point uh, MTN Nigeria got got a land in the metaverse. Mm-hmm. It's, it's just something relating to that. Uh, the Times at some point they they were selling some some NFTs, which is more like a sniff sniff. Uh, it's sort of like a cut of some some old newspaper. Uh, Quite, just quite recently, my friends from Liverpool, Liverpool also they are launching their Liverpool to work of um, NFT. So it's something that, uh, from from my perspective, it's something that that some 
going to be quite massive in the next future. So, and I guess, and when that happens, you wouldn't want to be a spectator. You probably want to be someone you know uh, already in that field, so that I mean, you, you could probably get some benefit from it at that point. But even if you don't, then it becomes a learning for you, and then you you still be able to understand you know, what's going on at that point. So I I see it from from that perspective, yeah. All right. But I advise people, it's not something you uh, you sort of devote all your life to. Some people do, but from my own personal perspective, it's highly for that side. Except you, you you have enough time to devote to it to you know to to be focused to it and you know learn about it. And you start going for it full time, in which is probably you know sort of decided on your own part that this is what I want to focus on. And, and then on that basis, you can decide that what portion of the investment portfolio you want to pursue. But other than that, yeah, you just trade cautiously. Perfect. Thank you. Thank you very much, sir. Yeah. Okay. Just, just before I let you go, sir, any last words or any last thoughts for the retail investors listening to this on how to improve their yeah. practice or just any last words for them? Yeah, I think, uh, I think investment. It's a long lifetime journey. It requires a lot of education. Like, but, but I think what I found this is that people, they don't want to learn. They just want to put their money somewhere and come back the next day and it's, it's done 1,000%. That's what we're looking for. But in some instances, that might work, but it's not always a, the best approach. Investment involves a lot of learning. I mean, you, you need to actually devote your time uh, to learn. So, I mean, oftentimes, like on, on a weekend, that's actually what I digest, you know. It was, I mean, when I sort of started, it was just in the weekend, like, okay, this cryptocurrency is distracting me, but I can need to, to know what it's about. And, you know, at some point, like my weekends or evening while in transit, I just read about them as you can start, you know, so managing your risk and, uh, you know, I, because they are quite, even that, as for that task, there's quite a lot of like scams and like, so, ah, you're also being security conscious. So those are more like the first set of stuff which I learned in terms of, you know, how to use sort of a pitch in that market and secure where you probably not get your, your asset at and the like. And that's why even it, it never happened to me that maybe I have a fall for that sort of um, trick. So I, I actually devoted time to learn. Um, even for my personal investment, I take some time out, you know, at some point, analysis of my investment you know, take take companies look at reports look at their, their you know their do some fundamental and technical analysis of okay this is, these are the companies which I think I would like to invest in oftentimes I don't invest in all of them at the same time I buy just you know, do my analysis and okay this is this is something which I have on my watch list which I would like to invest in and because my my career is a bit quite restricted, so before I sort of do that, I wish I sort of research something and then I'll probably check on you know, my firm's portal if there's probably no restrictions in terms of whether I can invest in those entities or not. And then before I sort of, I sort of also invest, so it's just one of that consideration for, for people in terms of conflict. So I would say education, learning is, is actually quite key. And secondly, is investment actually takes time. It's something, it's a lifelong journey. But if it's something that you do um, steadily and consistently, uh, you you would definitely be be, uh, be better off in the long run. And and the point which people usually do is, um, I mean, for novices, like they try to sort of time investment. Or if you're someone that probably invests in equity market, 
you can never time the market. People usually want to buy when they think things are falling down and then sell when things are, are high. But oftentimes people buy and then they realize that oh, the market is falling, or things are falling down, and then they, they decide to, to sell up the investment. And on that basis, they make losses. But to avoid that, there's something called dollar cost averaging. I mean, it's investing in Naira, I'll say Naira cost averaging. What that means is that, you know, you probably get see that every month I want to be investing 50,000 uh, Naira and then I'll be buying a certain number of, if, if you probably identify a certain number of stocks, you should be buying them with a, a fixed amount on a monthly basis over a certain period of time. Uh, you'll be better off than someone that tries to time the market, trying to buy when the price is so and high, because ultimately people usually fail to, to get that, that you can accept for few people who are the subsidiary resources to be able to do that market. Hold on and that's just great dollar for averaging. Set a certain cash or amount that you can invest, invest in on the monthly, ignoring the price. What happens is that over time, because you bought at different points in the life of your stock, let's say I, at the point when the price was high and low, your average cost over time would would, um, would would be lesser. Let me give you an instance. If you buy a stock today, the price of let's say, uh, 1,000 Tomorrow, at the end of next month, you buy a certain number of quantity, but the price was 500. Ultimately, what that means is that by the end of the two months, your, your cost will have been 750, right? But for someone that's trying to time it, and, and each point which you think you're timing, you probably you're buying randomly, randomly, you you hardly get that sort of that sort of advantage. So it's just one thing that um, that that thing can need to to be to do. Then last is the, I mean, uh, when when you sort of invest, you know, so it's very important that one before you even go into investment, so you need to identify what's the investment motive. Uh, what's your risk appetite and what's the willingness and ability to serve to take risk? That sort of define your risk appetite. So you need to understand why you're investing. So I have different portfolios that are certain investments which are in long term investment for me. So I usually don't care whatever the market is doing, why there's some certain portfolio which I'm operating uh, with. I don't, these are for short term investment. Maybe it's something I'm looking at to, to do within within the next two years. So usually you usually put uh, a short-term investment, you usually put them in a less volatile and less risky portfolio so that you know, the, the value would not compute them too much. These are more like the key stuff that you need to you know, sit down. You don't just go into investing. You can buy what's the, what's the investment objective. Right? You, just, you just want to invest uh, for the long term and, and on that basis, that would determine what you should invest in and how much of risk can you take. And that would also determine that terms of um, uh, the threshold which you should um, set in terms of, you know, if you're making these loss, you're so fine. But if your loss should go beyond this, then you, you probably need to you know, stop and you know, divest out of that portfolio. So these are things that you need you know, to, to, to have um, known at, at the onset uh, at points when you're investing there. Thank you so, so, so much for dedicating the time and for taking out the time to have that this conversation with us. We are very, very grateful and we don't take your time for granted. Um, hopefully, we can get to have some other chats some other time soon if, if, yeah, yeah. if, if your schedule is willing at some point in the future. We appreciate it. So. Yeah, yeah.